Hello, welcome to Solomon's Temple. We're doing book four of the gay science in our series of Friedrich Nietzsche as of late. Wouldn't you wish that you could be just a yes-sayer? Why not a naysayer? Well, naysayers aren't any fun. Why not say yes? Everyone says yes to the no. Say no to the yes, you're just saying no. Why not yes? Nietzsche says, Amor fati, let that be my love henceforth. I do not want to wage war against what is ugly. I do not want to accuse. I do not even want to accuse those that accuse. Looking away shall be my only negation. And all in all, and on the whole, someday I wish to be only a yes-sayer. Would it be good to just self-identify with everyone, and then turn around and identify something else and just throw it right back in someone's face? in any mean sense or any divisive way, but just to simply show people, like, if you're a yes-sayer, you're going to see the nay in what you're seeing currently. You're going to gain perception. And in a way, if we view it this way, there's no reason to really be a naysayer. Just to see the beauty in things, even if it's ugly. Even people waging war against you and people that are ugly. Of course, not just bad-looking uh, individuals or unfortunate souls that have a a hard-to-look-at face. I don't think that's what this means. Um, I just thought I would clarify that. But you know, the ugly, the ignorant, the foul, the unperceptive, the unfair, the irrational, and so forth. And should I dare seek to clarify that the beauty in life is overwhelming, that what we get our hands on, the kinds of things we come up with and improve upon, things we make, the things we desire, the kinds of things that have gone on, even foolish things, or even the most exalted of quality, all of this stuff, it's almost in a sense beyond who we are. So we're often very dirty, ugly souls. The experience a lot of the time, whether whether bad or rocky in any sort of direction, anything that bothers us, Nietzsche kind of has this attitude that, well, look at the instruments we play. They are so incredibly beautiful, the way we arrange notes, the incredible dexterity and beauty of our voices, and the, and the harmonies that we make and we make up through music and through instruments, that it must be some other further fact about our existence that is able to guide us to create such beauty. There must be something beyond what we're doing. He says, harmony that sounds too good for us to dare to give the credit to ourselves. Indeed, now and then someone plays with us, a good old chance, now and then. Chance guides our hand, and the wisest providence could not think up a more beautiful music than that which our foolish hand produces then. But I think also this calls into our mind that all these wonderful, visionary, and beautifully, aesthetically pleasing things that we're subjected to, we're not merely subjected to them. We in some sense have access to it. We only need to apply our faculties and we'll attain. Like there's this transcendental attainment of absolute beauty. But look at us now. But there's this further beyond that we could uh, reach out for almost or call into our being that makes us more and more beautiful if we only have a sort of a faith almost and providence in the fact that there is so much better things awaiting. And everything that really does happen happens of itself. And that even the bad things and the good things are happening for you, not to you. I think that's a really great way to look at life. And yet we are we're hasty to move into the future. He starts talking about the future a little bit here, that people rush into the future with great haste and desire to grab what they can. But of course what happens happens for you as it does in your time. And he mentions that they're common for all of us, and it's true, that we're all going to face death. We're all going to face the end. That's the only real future that you will reliably have, certainly. And to sort of reflect on that, it seems very unappealing, but also it makes the thought of life very appealing to know not what I'm going to get tomorrow, but know that there will be no tomorrow eventually. 
And of course, another thing that people strive for is a pleasant relationship with life, a pleasant relationship with everyone in their life. And he goes into friendships and he talks about a star friendship. And I like this because he's compelled to think that although we're not celebrating together and that we don't furthermore sit at the same table and we don't see a common goal or there's just these differences or maybe these illusions that we put between ourselves and we can't reconcile and that there's just no good memory uh, to go off of that really keeps people bonded. That there's just, uh, you just lose friends. But there's still power in the vision that there's a possibility somewhere that in some other life and in some other way or possibility that there is a belief in a star friendship. That even if we are compelled to be earthly enemies, some cosmic scheme should suggest that, well, maybe in another way or in another pattern or form or energy or another life or on another planet, or just in a greater in a greater understanding of ourselves, I wish that I could identify us as still star friends after all, even though right now we're earthly enemies. I think that's pretty beautiful. And of course, you got to be true to yourself. Uh, Nietzsche points out that there's all these uh, buildings that were built around a foundation of religiousness rather than contemplativeness. And he sort of have, has an issue with this because he wants to have his thoughts and do his things around uh, monuments that aren't based on godliness. He wants to have his own thoughts and his own surroundings. He wants to take walks in himself rather than stroll around buildings and gardens that were crafted for thoughts that aren't his. And I guess that can kind of make sense. And I think Nietzsche is calling for a society that wants, he's calling for people of their own cause, people that have wild ideas, people that are a little deranged, happier people, ecstatic people that are free and they are more endangered human beings. He says that they're a more fruitful human being. They have a greater enjoyment in living dangerously. He says, build your cities on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius. Send your ships into uncharted seas. Live at war with your peers and yourselves. Be robbers and conquerors as long as you cannot be rulers and possessors. You seekers of knowledge. So yeah, you know, don't try to rule, but just like break things down, fight, get into it, realize like who you are, like, question things. He says, you know, you don't want to live in a forest like a shy deer. <laughs> I mean, he's talking about providence and in one section and that now he's saying like, be freaking crazy. But I guess it is this extreme kind of providence. Just do as you will, do, do as you will and do it with a lot of might and be unique and challenge yourself and challenge other people. But also know that everything that is gonna come your way is for you. It's better for you that you have it anyways. It's not gonna bring a burden unto yourself. That is, if if you can't handle it, then well, then maybe your attitude isn't correct and that you don't, you think everything's happening to you rather than for you, or that there's no, not some uh, future that is arranged in a way that is more beautiful than what you're arranging, that you would never know how beautiful it's really going to be. If you would only subject yourself to everything. It is our duty as friends and of the community, people of the community, to embark and to not pity and shame people that are sad or people that are considered unworthy, but that those too have their own providence and that we respect that and that we venture towards that too, that we acknowledge that all these things are in play and that all of these people aren't to be disregarded just because they appear to be something. That something may be not going for them does not mean that there is providence for them yet in their ideas and in their intentions. I thought it was very interesting when he does uh, 
the section the fancy of the contemplatives the fancy of the contemplatives the higher he says the higher human being always becomes at the same time happier and unhappier but he can never shake off a delusion fancies that he is a spectator and a listener who has been placed before the great visual and acoustic spectacle that is life he calls his own nature contemplative and overlooks that he himself is really the poet who keeps creating this life like we're continuously fashioning our own lives for ourselves we're carving out our own contemplation and our own abilities and we're creating things we're making appearances in the world we're fashioning something that has not yet been there before um but he mentions that we're practical beings that we're actors we learn roles we translate everything in the flesh and actuality into the everyday so we create values and stuff and according to nature nature is value less or at least Nietzsche is saying that, like nature is sort of value, value less as a whole, but as what concerns man, we create a world that concerns us. But he says that we lack knowledge and that we catch it in a fleeting moment and we sort of can represent it and bestow our own recognition of fact and our estimates through our contemplation. And we create a sort of theater out of this. And of course, we stand by and watch the theater unfold, but that in some way is a, is a continuity pattern in time that we can take apart that has been stamped into a timeline and we can view it. But in some sense, we could interact and be a part of it as an actor. We are inside and outside viewing our contemplative roles. And of course, I think people are tricked a lot of the time and into viewing it simply as a play or as a fiction rather than it being really about what it's about, that you're not really a role in this. You're not playing a role in this. People are simply viewing, but they don't realize that you are the creator of it. You are the viewer of it. And then you are the thing unfolding itself that you're viewing. We are made to interpret experience in a myriad amount of ways. There's really an expanse that is much greater than we realize. He represents it in a parable. He says, Those thinkers in whom all stars move in cyclic orbits are not the most profound. However, looks into himself and as into vast space and carries galaxies in himself. Also knows how irregular all galaxies are. They lead into the chaos and labyrinth of existence. He's saying we're like one with the universe and that look at all that old cosmic order. Absolutely expansive and chaotic. And on to the next one, we have what belongs to greatness. Now, you wouldn't believe me, but he goes into suffering. Thinks that suffering is great. That in order to be great, you inflict suffering on somebody and accept the fact that you did. <laughs> but not, he says, not to perish of internal distress and uncertainty when one inflicts great suffering. And here's the cry of this suffering. That is great. That belongs to greatness. Rather to inflict a, a sort of suffering and be like, yeah, deal with it, almost. <laughs> of course, I guess you need to be able to suffer as well like suffer graciously i mean if you think about all the great things that have happened to modern civilization it has been done because there's been inflicted <laughs> suffering on a certain set of individuals you throw human suffering at something long enough it's going to get done all the great things all the great civilizations have been built on human suffering and it's almost as if like the sufferers were good sufferers like they suffered like they took that in they were great sufferers and people that inflicted great suffering there's almost that weird sort of thing and i don't promote that that's a weird german thing but hey you know i'm you, you call if you want to call america great if you want to call china great if you want to call all these great civilizations or any of these things they're a labor of love i mean you have to do you do have to struggle to do anything like in order to you know have attained something great or something you know nearing impossible to achieve in an amount of time you you do it and there's a lot of suffering that goes along with it huh. 
Okay. And to prove the point of the gay science, taking things seriously, I suppose, you lose sight of what it is to really amount to do anything. That it's with laughter and gaiety. That, that the serious thinking, you lose good spirit when you, quote, think well. It becomes serious, like a, like a machine, but it's burdensome. And in order to love fully, you cannot take yourself too seriously at first glance when you uncover something on first glance. At first, you're skeptical. Maybe you're over-analytical, like when you hear the first kind of new music or you're exposed to new art forms. You're looking at it, but you're not appreciating it. You don't know how to love it because you don't know it at all. It isn't something you've already loved, so you're unable to let it into your faculties completely and let the strangeness and the have patience with it and let the uh, expression and the odd quality of the thing take hold of you and then be at home with it. He compares this to uh, uh, this sort of learning to love something, being able to tolerate it in spite of the fact that you're not sure if you should or if you can, but you don't have this sense of what it's missing. You have this sense of what it is, and you go further and further and further into it with a fair mind, gently. And then gradually, you unveil exactly what it is, and then in the end, you're going to find its indescribable beauty. Because everything can have beauty in it, even a plastic bag just floating along in the wind. And in getting to know something new, there is a challenge to your own prejudice. Just because you were brought in thus far into existence with what you have, that you judge morally, or that you judge aesthetically, or that you judge based on logics and the terminology that you have been given, the kind of honors you have received in spite of having certain attitudes and likes, having objections instilled into you, obeying consciously out of fear of commander coming down on you, all of these sort of things that you are brought up into through childhood and uh, the own inner conscience maybe without a, a, an intellectual conscience just a regular old conscience that speaks to you but it doesn't come up upon you and you ask yourself what is my intellectual duty to my own intelligence what does my conscience really say and what does my intellectual conscience say about my conscience how do I obtain? In some respects, we're, we're told to say, uh, we're told to back up certain people. No matter what, you need to back up your friends. Well, what's a friend? A friend isn't always a friend. A friend in itself is someone you know, but it is not that new thing that you are afraid to come close to and abstract all of what your intellectual conscience is ready for, but you are not. It's some other, uh, maybe, stubbornness, an inability to devise new ideas deals to have a better attitude towards conscience consciences and agencies and things in the world that you encounter that you just haven't seen as beautiful yet if we're going to be truly authentic to who we are and what our ideals are in any solid sense he says look to history anything that acts physically you act like so if you want to rely on anything rely on the functionality and mechanics of physics, if you could even attain that. But in essence of that, we act as the greater sphere of forces, the will of physics. That's kind of cool, though.
I think my absolute favorite aphorism and mini-story through all the gay science is The Greatest Weight, where the demon shows up and says that this life that you have lived, everything that has gone on within your life, every pain and joy, all of these things summing, up, summing you up, would you live it innumerable, innumerable amount of times, saying that this always recurs, this is always recurring, this is always recurring, would you mash your teeth and curse the demon that spoke thus? Or... Would you experience a tremendous moment when you would have answered, answered him, you are a god, and never have I heard anything more divine. And I think the call here is make your life something that you would want to live over and over and over again. Make yourself infinitely involved with what you are doing now. Make it to where you wouldn't have it any other way. And that would be an eternal confirmation. I guess you gain a sort of salvation through that. What do you think? Well, thank you for tuning into this one. I'll see you next time. Feel free to donate on patreon.com forward slash Solomon's Temple. That would really help a small, modest donation. Such priceless information. And I gotta say, I haven't really gotten very many donations like thus far. So it would be cool if I got some compensation from a couple folks anyway. Just a shekel or two. Okay, y'all. Um, enough begging. Um, I will see you next time. Bye.